0: I've lived in New Jersey my entire life. I've been a fiction writer, actor, playwright, blogger, gourmet chef, home renovator, event planner, landscape architect, and decorator. I'm married to a professional drummer who is also an award-winning photographer, so the arts have always been really important to me. There are so many people in New Jersey that are involved in the arts and I am planning to talk to all of them. Well maybe not all of them but a lot of them and I'm inviting you to listen in. I'm Lucille Sapio, talking arts and culture and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk, not so famous in New Jersey. Today my guest is Steve Jankowski, world-class trumpeter, who also runs his own recording studio where he engineers, produces, and mixes local and national acts. Steve and I talk about a wide range of subjects, from what it's like to headline in Europe, to how he was able to create an incredible career living in New Jersey, to his first big break playing with Chicago. When you hear about all of Steve's credits, which include both Aretha Franklin and the Ringling Brothers Circus, you're going to know that he's not kidding when he says it's never work if you love it. Hello Steve.
1: Hello Lucille.
0: It's really good to see you.
1: Great to see you too.
0: I mean, the last time we saw each other was in Paris. It was, Doesn't right? does that sound wonderful? Wow.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I was doing over there. Was it? Was Was I with Niall? Sheik? Sheik? Yeah, okay. yeah.
0: You are one of only three trumpet players to tour with the legendary horn band Chicago. Yep. You were also a member of Blood, Sweat & Tears for eight years, right? Eight,
1: eight years, yeah. And I was musical director for six of those eight years.
0: You toured with Don Henley, the Funk Brothers, Sam Moore of Sam and Dave, Casey and the Sunshine Band, yeah. Donna Summers. But you haven't just been a sideman. You also have tons of recording credits. Yeah. Amy Grant's House of Love, mm-hmm. Daryl Hall, Platinum. Yep. Luther Vandross, who I love. Mm. I love Luther Vandross. Bon Jovi, the Rolling Stones. Played on two Grammy nominated CDs with uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears.
1: Yeah, for Jeff Lorber. <laughs>
0: Couldn't you leave some of those jobs for all those other unemployed horn players? <laughs>
1: Well, I'm getting old, so maybe that's going to happen sooner than later.
0: Who is your all-time favorite performer that you haven't played with?
1: Oh, great question. I'm thinking of some of my favorite performers, and then I'm thinking, wait a minute, I did get to play with her. (laughs) I mean, I got to do Aretha. That was awesome. Mm. She's one of my favorites. I guess it would be in the jazz world. I'd I'd love to play with somebody like Herbie Hancock, who's been with Miles Davis, been with all the greats, Coltrane, all of them.
0: So it seems like the only act that you haven't played with is Michael Jackson, or or have you?
1: No, I haven't played with him. I have not. You
0: know, and that that leads me to a question. How often have you turned down a gig because you had an ethical or a personal problem with the performer?
1: That may have happened a few times. I can't recall offhand who or what the situation was, but... uh, if Michael had called, <laughs> I probably would have done it just because I love his music.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I kind of feel guilty enjoying dancing to his music. Right. Now, I've been in audiences where people just go wild over the horn section. And it wasn't until the 60s that bands started regularly incorporating horns, if I'm correct. Why did it take so long for bands to recognize the value of adding in horns? What makes that addition to the mix so appealing to audiences?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, you got to look back towards, you know, the jazz and the blues thing, which, you know, obviously had horns in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But in terms of contemporary music, I would think that Motown, Barry Gordy and, and all those guys saw the value in it. You know, they brought in strings. They brought in orchestral musicians and they said, well, let's try horns. And it just added a whole nother dimension.
0: Now, how did you start playing the horn? And how did you end up focusing on the trumpet?
1: So I was in third grade and uh, my cousin, his father bought him a trumpet. He didn't like it, he wanted to play guitar. So my aunt said, you know, here, give it to Stevie, let Stevie try this. So I tried it, and there happened to be a guy in high school that lived across the street. His name was Kevin Solovsky, and he actually was playing in a band that became the E Street Band. So he was section mates with Clarence Clemens, and, and, you know, he was the cool kid on the block. So I thought, all right, let me try playing the trumpet. So I did, and, you know, he gave me lessons, and it was fun. By eighth grade, I was more into basketball than I was into music, so I quit for a year Then when I got to high school, uh, Wall Township High School, somehow the band director, Les Hollander, knew that I had played trumpet. So he came to me and he said, yeah, you don't want to do basketball. You're not good (laughs) enough. He said, you know, if you do band, you can get credit for this class and that class and you don't have to do this. So I said, all right, let me try it. He saw how competitive I was. When you're a freshman, they put you on third trumpet, the lowest chair, and you think you can be better than the senior that's playing first trumpet. I just started practicing a lot. I was practicing four or five hours a day. I made All Shore Band that first year, the second year I made Regions Band, and later that year, my sophomore year, I made All State.
0: How much were you influenced by players like Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie and Miles?
1: Quite a bit, actually. My, my dad loved jazz. He was a self-taught piano player. Growing up, we were listening to records all the time. and. and All my friends in high school, all the guys in the band would come over to the house because dad would play records and say, hey, I'll give you $10 if you can play this solo. (laughs) And he actually did that with me. He said, look, I'll give you $1,000 if you can play a plunger mute solo like Cootie Williams does on this. And, you know, fast forward eight years later.
0: So how would you describe your style of playing?
1: Well, I'm a product of the age I came up in. So I grew up listening to rock and roll. I think one of my first three records that I bought was, they were Houses of the Holy, uh, Sticky Fingers, and a Moody Blues record. Mm. You know, but I was also listening to the music that my dad was listening to. And then somebody turned me on to Chicago and the rock bands, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Ides of March. I'm
0: your vehicle, baby. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) I mean, when I was, I think, I was probably around seven or eight years old and my folks took us to the Steel Pier. All of a sudden I heard this music and I opened the doors into the auditorium. Somehow I walked right in the front and I'm standing right in front of The Ides of March. Oh. And the next song they played was Vehicle. Ah. So I'm standing there and I all of a sudden these four horns just hit me and I just got chills. Yeah. It's you know? like a whole sound and it was so cool and yeah. and it, that was actually the point where I said that's what I want to do. Yeah. And then fast forward another 30 years later, Jim Peterick, the guy that was in the Ides of March that wrote the song Vehicle, he was a guest artist with Blood, Sweat & Tears, so I actually got to play with Jim on oh, the song that he cool. wrote. Yeah.
0: So uh, there was a recent poll where they asked people to pick their favorite from a list of 10 great horn bands. Tower of Power was the Runaway winner. Mm-hmm. Followed by Chicago, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Mm. Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Mm. One of the things that may have driven Tower Power to the top was Greg Adams, Mm -hmm. who wrote many of those baritone sax lines and their signature horn charts. Sure. How much of an effect on the final product did the horn arrangers have on the bands that you've played with?
1: Oh they had a huge impact. I mean Jimmy Panko wrote all the most of the horn charts in Chicago. When you think of Chicago songs especially from the 70s and 80s, you know, you hear the horn lines, you think of the horn lines and Jimmy was responsible for that. I mean, he's probably single-handedly responsible for rock and roll trombone playing. Mm. So to answer your question quite a bit with Tower of Power, those horn lines, people sing the horn lines just as much as they sing the <laughs> melodies. Um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was a little bit of a different thing. That was kind of a Ranger by committee. There's probably not a whole lot of the horn lines that you would sing unless it was like the hit songs like You Made Me So Very Happy or Spinning Wheel. But for the most part, it was a collaboration between jazz and rock, so a lot of it was more on the jazz side of things than Tower or than Chicago.
0: Being married to a musician, I I know the role that an arranger plays. But how important is that to a band, the arranging?
1: Oh, it's huge. I mean, I do a lot of arranging for for a number of bands.
0: Explain what that means for the, the layperson.
1: Sure, sure. Well, all right, so if you're producing a record, somebody comes to you with a song, and the song... Could be a great song, but maybe they're not hearing it in the best style that it could be in. So as an arranger, depending on the style, you can add secondary melodies to it. Like, for instance, take Chicago's Does Anybody Know What Time It Is. The the horn section in the chorus is a memorable line, you know, And, and, and that was all the arranger. That's not the songwriter. You know, same thing with a television commercial, McDonald's, bum-ba-dum-bum-bum, that line that the, you know, now it's the one guy is just kind of half singing it, but mm. it's a memorable line. That was done by an arranger. Ah. So arrangers are hired based on reputation, usually, because they're good and they they can take a song and take it to another level.
0: So how does this touring affect your home life?
1: Great question. You know, my wife, Deb, she's great. She's been in the situation I've been in. She toured with Mamas and Papas. Ah. Didn't know that, yeah. She replaced Mama Cass for six years, so she wow. knows the lifestyle, oh, and, okay. and she knows you know how good it is for your career financially, how it's good. Um, so she, she gets it, she doesn't mind it at all.
0: So, you've played Madison Square Garden with Donna Summers, and which I'm guessing was disco, mm-hmm. and then you played Carnegie Hall with Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. Which of those gigs was more challenging?
1: Uh, well, Donna Summer, I had played many times before. Aretha Franklin, it was a sight reading gig, it was my first first and only time. So I'd say that one was more challenging just because I had never done it before.
0: Which was more satisfying?
1: Oh, Aretha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I grew up listening and loving Aretha. It was just, just unbelievable. Although Donna Summer was a great show to play and she was so nice to all the musicians. She'd come up, you know, talk to you before rehearsal, before sound check, see how you're doing. Most don't do that.
0: If, if I recall correctly, I believe she was classically trained.
1: Uh, very possible. She had perfect pitch. She always sounded amazing.
0: Now, I have always loved the Phoenix horns, the original horn section mm-hmm. for Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is that makes their sound so unique? Was it trumpeter Mark Harris's unique control and precision in the instrument's upper register? Mm-hmm. Or was it their staccato, rhythmic, almost percussive approach that made them stand out?
1: I would say the staccato, rhythmic approach. And, and you know, most of that's credited to the arranger. I mean, most of that was probably Maurice, you know, just mm-hmm. telling the guys what to play and how he wanted it played.
0: I actually saw Earth, Wind, and Fire. Fire with Maurice nice. back in wow. 73 or 74 wow. at Rutgers. I was in the third row. Oh, it must it have was been a great, great concert. Yeah, yeah,
1: we got to tour with them in the horn section they have now. Um, Bobby Burns, the trumpet player, is just a great player, a good friend of mine.
0: How does Earth, Wind & Fire's horn section compare to the three horn saxophone centric sound of James Brown?
1: Earth, Wind & Fire is more trumpet heavy, um, more staccato and spitty, like you said, rhythmic. The sax sound in the James Brown thing, you know, saxes aren't as bright, uh, they don't have as much upper harmonics as trumpets do. It's a mellower, warmer uh, sound that a lot of people go for, especially in the blues genre.
0: So I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. (laughs) Did your research for sure. He's going, what? How did she know
1: that?
0: (laughs) Like virtually every musician in the world, you decided to open a recording studio. But unlike most other musicians, you've actually succeeded in making it into a profitable business. You record, produce, and engineer at your own Jankland Recording Studio. Right. Do you have a website?
1: Yes janklandrecording.com
0: uh, And by the way, you've got a reputation among musicians for doing a great job there. What did you do differently than other musicians to actually made, make it successful?
1: That's a great question and, and, and I'm not sure I know the answer. I, I
0: mean because musicians don't have money. That's,
1: uh, yeah, that's, no, the, first, that's the first reason most musicians I mean, fail
0: at this because their customers don't have the money.
1: Yeah. Yeah, true. I think a big part of why the studio is successful is because of my reputation as a musician. I think they go hand in hand. I think without that, I probably wouldn't have had such a successful studio. I mean, I just recently had Joey D'Francesco in, who's a great organist in, in the jazz genre. Well, I had met him 30 years prior at a NAMM show, and he heard me play trumpet, and he remembered. I did a record, I don't mean to be name dropping, no, I did no, a, I go did a ahead. record for Joe Pesci.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: And, you know, Joe brought in some of the world's greatest musicians. He brought in Kenny Barron, Christian McBride. He sang? Pat Martino, Joe sang. You Was know, he any good? Yeah, he's great. It's called ah. Pesci Still Singing. Ah. It's on Amazon. You can find it. All these jazz standards. It's a really good record. You know, these guys walked in, some of the greatest jazz musicians in the world, looking at me very skeptical, and then all of a sudden Christian McBride walks in, who's one of the world's best jazz bass players, and he walks in. He goes, Steve, and wraps his arm around (laughs) me and gives me a big hug. Well, it turns out that I had played with him four years ago at the Aspen Jazz Festival, and he remembered (laughs) that. So I'm just telling that story just to demonstrate that one goes with the other.
0: So as someone who has performed as a musician in this area for so many years, you obviously know dozens, if not hundreds, of local musicians. Mm -hmm. When you need someone to work on a particular project for a client, how hard is it for you to choose between all of those musicians you know? Mm. And how often has a musician who's a friend of yours been angry Mm -hmm. when you haven't called them?
1: Very often. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, that's a hard thing to do, and I think that might be one reason why my reputation is what it is because I always no matter what pick the best person for the job and not who I'm the friendliest with people understand that it can get in the way of friendships but it really hasn't that much I think people really get it
0: so this area of New Jersey the the Jersey Shore Mm -hmm. has a lot of really talented musicians Mm -hmm. you stand out in that you've had a successful career traveling around the world all over the country as a sideman. Aside from simply being a talented horn player, how did that happen?
1: I think a lot of it is the willingness to go out on the road. I know so many great musicians locally that Mm. probably don't want to be away from home for nine months out of the year and they don't put themselves out there as being available for that. I made it known early on that i love touring and i love being on the road you know for instance when they made that movie standing in the shadows of motown Uh turns out that alan slutsky the guitar player who produced it they did a tour and and my uh, friend of mine sax player was on that tour and he said we're going to europe but we can't really afford a trumpet player i called alan up i said look i want to do this i don't care what you pay me this is huge this is a great thing I i would love to be a part of this of course he took me and we did it and you know when you do things like that it's even though it's a big industry everybody knows everybody and it's small and when people found out that I was in it for the music I think that added to the reputation and a lot of people started calling me
0: now did you actually plan out what you wanted to do or did it just kind of nah, happen? it
1: just happened my, one of my teachers uh, After high school, I went to University of Miami to study jazz. A teacher down there said, there's nothing here for you. You need to be in New York. So I went to New York, and my teacher in New York said, look, everybody comes here wanting to do one thing or the other, but you're just going to get calls, and one day you're going to realize that this is your genre and this is what you do mm-hmm. and he was right i mean i never would have thought i'd be like the dance disco band trumpet <laughs> player you know but after casey and the sunshine band donna summer you know all these bands chic plays dance music It just seems like where it went but no i never made a decision that's what i want to do it's just kind of where, where it dragged me yeah
0: <laughs> what do you think it is about you that made your career so different because, because a, it's, not just, it's not just the willingness to go on the road Because yeah. there are people that are willing They still yeah. haven't had your success
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question And I, I do a lot of clinics with universities and high school bands I tell them that you have to be driven You, you know, you've got to put the time in but a lot of it is just this you know you put the blinders on and and you know you're going to make it and you know you're going to do these things and you don't let doubt creep in you know i see kids that tell me well if i if i can't make it in music you know i'm going to i'm getting my degree in law or or whatever and I'm, I'm, already i'm thinking well they're not going to make it in music they're they've already decided that they're going to do something else part of it for me was just this dumb blind ignorance where i put blinders on and that's all i was going to do and yeah it it wasn't always great i remember back in the 80s playing the circus in new york three shows a day driving to philadelphia to play with a club band, hardly sleeping sleep or sleeping in the rest stop on the road yeah but it was fun at the time i was a kid it was fun and it honed my chops. It got me to a place where when I did get the call, my, my second big call was the sub in Chicago. And I had 48 hours to memorize a whole <laughs> night's worth of music. Fortunately, I had been listening to it for years growing up. That was a big boon to my reputation. I mean, the gig went well, and everybody all over the country knew about it. And that's how the reputation started as a you know, touring road musician. You know, just right place, right time.
0: Every year I used to go to see George Benson, as I mentioned Mm. before, and one of the things that I enjoyed the most about his performances was watching the horn players. You probably have seen that comedy sketch where like nine tenths of the time they're standing next to each other joking and laughing and then suddenly (laughs) they pick up their horns and go boop and then put them down and go back to to talking and joking. I know that's an exaggeration. But that is one of the things I loved about going to see George Benson. The horn section was always so much fun to watch. And then he suddenly got rid of them and began relying on the synthesizer instead. So, Mm. of course, I was really disappointed. So that was probably the last Benson performance I ever saw. Mm. How has the budget conscious move to get rid of horn players like this Mm -hmm. affected you and other musicians?
1: That was prevalent a lot in the '80s. Um, you know, things things went more to samples and, and synthesizers. That seemed like when it went away from horn bands for a little while. I was still in New York. I was still playing Ringling Brothers Circus among other things. You played Ringling Brothers yep. Circus, okay? Yep. Right up until <laughs> right that. up until they got rid of the horns in the late '80s. So it did affect us a little bit, but I was always, you know, lucky. I went right from that into a gig playing at all the home games for the Philadelphia 76ers. Mm. And and that got me on a lot of recording sessions in Philly because I was visible in Philly. I branched out. I wasn't just here at the shore. I did a lot in New York. I did a lot in Philly. I did a lot in Atlantic City.
0: How much has technology made you have to keep upgrading? I know, you know. Well, that's a great question also,
1: but to me the old stuff still sounds better so you know right now I'm buying these old ribbon mics the one that I just bought was used on Doc Severance on the Tonight Show band but that's the sound that I grew up listening to you know when I listened to Freddie Hubbard all these jazz greats that's the sound that's what they use so I want those now people know I have those people are hiring me to play on their records because I can get that sound
0: yeah you play multiple genres of music if you could only play one, mm. which one would it be?
1: Wow, that's a great question. You know that I, I mean, I, I love the variety. It, it keeps me fresh, keeps me on my toes. I guess it would be if I only could play one. It would be like R&B, funk, soul in that genre.
0: So if you could only play one type of music, and it was the least favorite type of music, yeah, <laughs> what would that be?
1: Oh, that would be jazz. I mean, oh, really? I, I love playing jazz, but it's not very popular. Oh, oh. I mean, you know. Well,
0: I'm talking about what. What would like be like torture to you?
1: Torture. <laughs> oh, you're gonna get me in trouble here. Um, <laughs> torture. You know, there's things that I don't enjoy doing, and I'm grateful that I have the recording studio. I mean, some of those things that I don't enjoy doing are playing the Saturday night wedding bands. I really don't enjoy doing that, and there's some great ones out there, and I've done it. I'd rather be creating in the recording studio than doing that depends on what broadway show it is it's also not my favorite thing i've done a bunch of them some of them are great and there's some that i would love to do but that old school type show is not my favorite so
0: you're not into south pacific
1: Nah, (laughs) not my thing
0: i can sing every song Uh, really My mother had, like, three albums when I was growing up. Did you
1: see the most recent production at Lincoln Center with Danny Burstein?
0: No, no. I did see West Side Story at Lincoln Center back in 1969. Wow, cool. Which was great. I bet. Yeah,
1: Yeah, now, something like that, that's a classic. That would be fun to play. Yeah, that's great music. That would be a lot of fun to play.
0: You have a recording studio. You're a great trumpet player, but do you write music as
1: well? I do, but not so much. You know, the stuff I've written... Mostly for jazz projects that that I was asked to record or produce or be a part of. I've got a song that's coming out on the Andy Rothstein record that's due out later this month that co wrote with one of the singers in Chic, Audrey Martel, she's a great lyricist, so I've got something coming out there. I've, I've well, got let's, a- let's
0: listen to a little piece of that. <laughs> in the rhythm when your lips are moving, and I taste the sweetness in your lies, my trust in you is my undoing, so I pretend to have a blind eye. Right, well, we've come to our, our last question. Uh-oh. So what kind of advice would you give a young horn player about pursuing a career in music?
1: A, you got to love it. If you love it, you're going to be fine. you just you, you got to do the work. I mentioned earlier on when I was in high school practicing four or five hours a day. I mean, I remember, my and my band director, who's still alive, jokes about it, that in lunch period and, and uh, study hall, I would make my way into the band closet and just practice in there, practice my scales, practice long tones, you know, all the stuff that you have to practice. I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's never work if you love it. So as long as you love what you're doing, you'd be fine. The other the other things, you know, just all the stuff you tell every kid coming up, mm-hmm. be on time, be nice, be personable, be fun to be with, all the things that are kind of common sense that kids may not think about.
0: Yeah. Well, Steve, thanks for making the time to come today. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. I know you're barely ever home, so.
1: (laughs) Well, COVID helped that. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: I love the arts, and I love to talk, and that's why I'm talking to local artists. And if you like listening, then subscribe to my podcast. You can do it on this page, on iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Lucila Sapio, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. Not so famous in New Jersey.